0: Chances, a talk show where we like to hear from people who devoted their life to health, fitness and wellness, medical professionals, health coaches and all the others who help us every day to cure our body, mind or soul. Those who always look for more natural, holistic ways to help even more people to live a happier and healthier life. Those who don't like to give up easily and settle on you or themselves. It is never too late, or too soon. I always believe that every one of us deserves not just a second chance, but as many as we need. I'm Vera, your host. Who better than a master of reinvention with an accent to guide you through it, right? Just like they say, you are not a tree, so move. And God knows I have done just that in my own life many, many times. If you are not completely happy with the direction your life is going, This show may help you get the courage to change what is needed, find a new path, and take charge. So come on over, pour yourself a glass of wine and spend some time with us. Let's laugh and cry together and get inspired by people just like you and me, who overcame their own doubts and took a leap of faith to reinvent their life on their own terms. I hope and pray that we help you on that journey. And if you feel so compelled and inspired, please let us know. Don't be shy. Who knows? You may just be our next featured guest with another inspiring success story. So here we go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Third Chances. And today I have quite interesting experience because I met Jill McClennan, she is a certified dead doula and I have to admit I have never heard of it I never I never knew this kind of profession existed and I was really thrilled because honestly if I knew about her when I needed it the most two and a half years ago I would probably reach out because that's the experience nobody knows how to deal with I mean, we do our best, but we don't really know what we are doing. So Jill offers holistic end-of-life support and coaching. She assists clients virtually and in person, helping them prepare for the end-of-life with guidance and emotional support. She incorporates Reiki and shamanic healing techniques to address fears surrounding death and to help people achieve soul-level healing. Jill hosts the seeing that clearly podcast sharing valuable insights and stories on end of life matters that actually is quite a quite a stunning title for the podcast Jill welcome to welcome to third chances how are you today
1: i'm excellent thank you so much for having me and you know i tried to name the podcast something similar to my business name um I really took a long time to decide on my business name. I had a like Google, you know, spreadsheet or whatever they call them on Google. And I had Mm -hmm. like 400 different words and I kept rearranging them and moving them around and just really trying to get clear on communicating what it is I wanted my business to be about. And I named it end of life clarity because Mm -hmm. I really wanted people to get a better understanding, to understand more clearly what the end of life is really about. And so when I went to name my podcast, I was like, all right, I want something along the same lines. And so I went with seeing death clearly because again, it's 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 just a topic that we avoid. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. And then unfortunately, when we end up in circumstances like you went through, when we have to, we have no choice, then we're not prepared. We're afraid. We're overwhelmed. We're exhausted. We're also grieving the person that we love because we have anticipatory grief. And so if we can start thinking about death and dying and talking about it and hearing other people talk about it in a way that makes it you know, not so taboo, not so scary. I really think we could all have a better experience. And so that's really the biggest goal in my podcast was just to help people feel more comfortable listening to conversations about topics that will always be sad. I mean, when you lose somebody that you love whether it's from death or whether it's you know a divorce or you know the ending of a friendship when you lose people that you love it's always going to be sad but it doesn't have to be so traumatic and so painful if we could just kind of talk about it a little bit more openly before we need to face it
0: yeah i absolutely admire what you do because i realize how hard it is and even the experience with hospice at the end uh, was to me so stunning that there would be people in service being called to do some, such a work because it's got to be emotionally draining for everybody. And obviously for people that are, you know, in touch much closer because they are losing their loved one, uh, the emotions are overwhelming. And then you're trying to be strong and be there for, for, for him and do what what it what needs to be done but you touched on something interesting when you said uh the people are grieving before that person even passed because you know what's coming and i just it it got one, mom, one, one thought to my head when you said that how i i was actually unprepared to because we were making decisions together we were consulting everything together we were like one we had a great relationship. That fact that you lost that part of you because now you have nobody to consult with. You cannot consult with him. <laughs> you you have to make decisions, which I never had issue to make decisions, but still it's it's involving him. Mm-hmm. And it's that was the part that I realized that it's really extremely hard because you have nobody to run it with. It's... You cannot involve kids into that, you know. It's it's really the adults' decisions, and that was something that I definitely would use help with if I if I could at that time. But I want to go back to start at the beginning because it's quite a it's, well. Maybe it's quite unusual for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm looking like a fool because everybody knows that this kind of work exists, but I didn't. Uh, I knew about doulas that are Uh, assisting birth but not the end of the life which is it makes all the sense but i would like to know how someone like you like i I can't imagine that you just wake up one day (laughs) and decide to do this (laughs) but there better be something that that started on that path but can you tell me what what you wanted to be when you were little when what you were dreaming about to do in your life when you were at school
1: Oh yeah, I would love to. And you're not alone. Most people have never heard of this work. So it's not just you. I mean, that's (laughs) good. Don't (laughs) worry about that. Oh yeah. No, no, no. It's not just you. And so, yeah, you know, when I was really little, like when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a brain surgeon. Like that was right. I know that was the thing that I, I think I had seen a special on like PBS you know, and they were talking about like brain surgery and they were showing like an actual video of like a brain surgeon performing surgery on a young man. Like I could still in my head, remember it. And I remember seeing it and thinking, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to go and I want to like really help people. And like, and I think at that point, I hadn't started getting migraines yet, but I started getting migraines when I was really young, which I think was also what really like kind of pushed me towards like, I want to figure out what's going on with the brain. Like why, why does it hurt so much? And like, what's that's interesting.
0: Yeah. So it's there weird. was no fear of blood or anything like that. And
1: no, like, I died. <laughs> I had never been afraid of death or dying or blood or any of that type of stuff until I had kids. Once I had kids, some of that changed, but that's a whole different story. But when I was little, I really wanted to go down that path. And unfortunately, like a lot of people, I didn't learn the way that they traditionally would teach in school. I didn't learn very easily that way. And so, you know, when I was pretty young, I just automatically, I had teachers that were kind of like, you're never going to be able to go to medical school like you you're not going to be able to do it and i got that seed planted in my head that i was not smart enough to ever become a doctor that's unfortunate and yeah it is unfortunate also i mean you know my life is is perfect for me the way that it is but it still is unfortunate that that's what really caused me to think like i can't ever do that because i'm not smart enough to do it and then you know My grandfather died when I was young, I, I kind of lived with him and my grandmother, my mother was a single mom, she was at work all the time. Um, And so you know, I was around when my grandfather died. And I know, like, even growing up, my grandmother would tell me, like, I was never afraid to go near him. If anything, at one point, he actually had a brain tumor, which maybe that's why I was like, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. I don't know. He had, um, a, like it started in his lungs. It was lung cancer that spread into his brain. And so it got to the point where he couldn't verbally communicate very clearly. And my grandmother said that I was the only person that could understand him. And I was about four when he died. So I was pretty little, And they got to the point where they were asking me what grandpa was saying, because I was the only person that was able to understand him. So I would like hang out with him all day long. I would sit in his hospital bed with him. I would push his wheelchair around. you know, like, we were really close. Hmm. And that I think really, you know, affected my life as well that, you know, the one man that was really in my life that I was very close with, he died when I was very young. I, didn't have any processing of that experience. I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. So I held a lot of that grief in. And so as I got a little bit older, you know, once I got into high school, there was a lot of anger, there was a lot of feeling like I wasn't worthy of things, you know, that I was too stupid to do things. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting into some trouble like a lot of teenagers do um but I was, lucky enough in some ways that my grandmother like never gave up on me. And so I ended up deciding that I wanted to go to culinary school that I was like, this is my path, you know, like I'm going to be a cook, I'm going to work in a kitchen, like the people in kitchens accept me for who I am. I don't have to be super book smart, you know, like I'm really good with my hands. I'm good at learning visually. And so I went down that path. And that's really where I've spent the bulk of my career is in food service. I've, you know, I was a line cook. I've worked in restaurants, hotels, um, country clubs. I mean, I owned a bakery cafe for a while with my husband. I mean, like that was my life. And I really loved that career. I wasn't passionate about it though, which is so weird because I spent so much of my time in it. Yeah that you know people will be like well, what was your favorite thing to cook what's your favorite thing to bake even like what's your favorite thing to eat i'm like i eat because i have to eat i mean i do enjoy a good meal once in a while but like 99% of the time i just eat food because if i don't i'll die mm-hmm. and when i bake i bake what i'm supposed to bake it's not cuz i it's not cuz it's my favorite no. thing like i make what i'm supposed to make it's a job you know um and when my husband and i we owned a bakery actually we were living in California when we got married. We wanted to open a bakery. And my 90-year-old grandmother said, why don't you move home to New Jersey and you can move in with me. And then that'll keep me in my house and you guys will have somewhere to live so you can open your bakery and like, mm. focus on that. And somehow I convinced my husband, who's not from New Jersey, to move to New Jersey with me. Um, and we moved in with my 90-year-old grandmother. And right after we moved in, she found out she had cancer. It was right after her 90th birthday and about a month later, she found out she had cancer. And so the next four years of us living with her, opening a bakery, you know, running this very time. <laughs> I mean, we spent so much time at that bakery. It was yeah. crazy. Um, but like, you know, we went through this experience of her going through different surgeries and radiation and you know, different side effects that she had from the surgeries and the radiation and just watching over time, how it was really just causing her a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And when we finally got to the point where the doctor said, you know, there's really nothing else we could do, we're going to send your grandmother home with hospice. I said, mm. okay, like, and they said, who, you know, who takes care of her? I'm like, well, I do. I live with her. At the time I had a six month old baby. Again, mm. I had this bakery and they're saying, okay, we're going to send your grandmother home on hospice. And I thought, okay, grandma's going to sleep a lot. Cause that's what they do in the movies, right? Like when yeah. people are dying, they're very peaceful in bed and they're sleeping. And like, that's what I thought was going to happen in my head. And the first night I was home with her. I could hear her downstairs making noise at like one or two o'clock in the morning. And I get up and I go down there and I got the baby because, you know, it's a six month old, like they're attached to you practically. And so I bring the baby downstairs and I'm like sitting on her bed and I'm like, Hey, you know, what's going on? And so she's talking to me and then she says, my granddaughter has a baby the same age as yours. And I'm like, well, I am your granddaughter. And she said, no, you're not. You're the nurse. And Mm -hmm. right then I was like, Oh. What did I get myself into? Because oh boy, I yeah. don't understand. And so I spent the next like 15 minutes trying to convince her that I was her granddaughter. And then eventually, I just gave up on that. And then went mm-hmm. down the rest of the night. We were up, you know, she's telling me about people that she's talking to, that she's seeing. I mean, by the time hospice showed up the next day, I was exhausted, yeah. in tears, and just like, what is happening? And they were like, oh, honey, okay, let's, let's talk about this. And thankfully the nurses, you know, while they were doing the things they needed to do to my grandmother, were also talking me through this. This is normal. This is natural. It happens a lot. It's called sundowner syndrome where they'll be up all night. You know, the fact that she doesn't know who you are, like, that's totally normal. It's okay. Like there's nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. And thank God that they were there because I... Just immediately, once I started to accept the fact that this is just a normal part of the death process and that there wasn't anything wrong, I wasn't doing anything wrong, mm. she wasn't, you know, she wasn't, there was nothing wrong with the situation. Yeah. Then I started to relax into it. And then I started enjoying the nights when we were up in the middle of the night, even if she didn't know who I was, she was telling mm-hmm. all kinds of stories and we were just having all these conversations and then you know, and then she would talk about like the women that were singing to her that I couldn't see, but I was like, this is crazy, but it's also really fascinating. And by the time that she died, she was only on hospice for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, And even by the end of the three weeks, I remember saying to one of the nurses, I think I want to do this work, this is what I think I want to do. But I don't know if I could do the things that you're doing. like watching the nurses do something. The physical,
0: yeah. The
1: physical stuff. I was like, thank thank you for doing it. But I don't know if I could. And she said, oh, you could easily do this. And I was like, oh, don't know about that. But, Hmm. you know, I had, again, I had a six month old, I had my bakery. So I just kind of put all of it on the back burner, but I never forgot it. Like, it just was like something in me was like, this is what you're supposed to do. Like the cooking.
0: Was it the the realizing that if you, like when you had the little help from them, that you you had much better experience with the entire end of of her life? Oh yeah, Yeah.
1: I had a much better experience. And then I was so happy and grateful that I was able to be there with her Mm -hmm. because the reality is we're all gonna die right? Like I I know that a lot of us don't want to think about that. It has to happen. Hmm. And if it has to happen anyway, the person that raised me and cared for me and was there for me every step of the way, I wanted to be there with her. And once I understood the realities of what was going on, then I was able to show up in a way where I was fully present, where I was able to appreciate it, look at it with curiosity and not as much fear. Mm-hmm. And it's still sad. I mean, when she died, I was still really sad. I mean, she she was my grandma, you know, like yeah. I, I- And raised you, yeah. yeah. She did. I mean, she was so impactful on my entire existence yeah. that even now there's times when I'll sometimes- think to myself like oh you know i i want to tell grandma this thing my grandmother's been dead nail for almost 13 years and there's still part of me that is like i don't really always realize that she's gone hmm. Which i think necessary.
0: it stays with us somehow it's the the moments that we had with that person the the possibility of sharing stuff and consulting and you know yeah yeah
1: yeah and it's okay you know, and it's beautiful, yeah. It's so beautiful. I feel like she is still with me, even though her physical body is not. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's really how I got into this work without realizing that there was somebody that did work as a death doula. So it's not medical care at all. Yeah. It's really providing the emotional, uh, the spiritual in a lot of cases, the physical support that people need around the end of life and not just the person that's dying. I really love working with caregivers and helping them to understand what's happening and be their support person because caregivers really get forgotten about. Yeah, And it's a really, really big job that a lot of people take on. It's unpaid labor, and it is labor. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work to care for somebody that you love that is going through an illness and then going through, you know, the dying process. And, you know, having somebody that can help support during that time would have really helped me. And I did find it a little bit with hospice, but again, their job isn't to take care of me. Their job is to take care of my grandmother. And that was great because then at least it helped me, but that's the thing too, that most people don't realize, you know, at first I thought, well, when hospice comes around, they're there like 24 hours a day. Like, I don't know. She's got like a full-time caregiver. Like, no, I'm the full-time caregiver. Hospice shows up for maybe an hour a day to help me bathe her and help make sure her medications and any other weird things that are maybe happening that she needs help with, but like the bulk of it is on the family or the friends or whoever it is that is taking on the role as caregiver and most people don't realize that
0: yeah yeah that was a surprise for me too because we basically had the 24-7 care for the last two and a half days but the the, like you said the most of it was The nurse comes once in a while, checked on him, checked the vitals, you know, doctors showed up, checked the vitals and my husband was pretty, in pretty good shape. He didn't have a lot of pain. So they were checking on that. There were some issues, but like you said, 24 seven care is up to you. You are the one in the middle of the night to help him to go bathroom if he can still do that and all that things that people don't even think about. Yeah, it's, it's, and Also, one interesting experience that I made uh, people are offering you help, but it's not, it's like you cannot really get help in this field. I remember uh, one of our daughters uh, wanted to help, and I was like, You would have to be here, you would have to sleep here. I cannot call you in the middle of the night. Hope that you answer the phone and wait for you till you get here so he can go to bathroom. You would have to be here. Mm -hmm. I don't need you to sit next to him by the bed and talk to him. I mean, you're welcome to do that, of course, but that's like he's perfectly fine being on his own. What I need is the physical health, because I had three surgeries on my back, so it wasn't easy for me for sure. But also the aspect of the person dying and his own dignity. Mm-hmm. I think there is a hard time to, and maybe, well, it got to be the same for everybody, whether woman or man. Uh, you don't want your own kids to be, you know, seeing you like that and taking care of very intimate. It is really not easy. It's much easier to, to accept from stranger than from the People closest to you and that that was part of it too because I I really knew that he he wouldn't want anybody to see him like that Mm -hmm. and that's that's intense but like you said I the hospice is really not there but I was really grateful because they did help me to understand things and be there for me and there was chaplain that showed up few times that was absolutely spectacular and it wasn't about religion it was he was for all religion Mm -hmm. it's just he was there for me to understand and be there to appreciate what I do and what where I may be mentally and I really so appreciated his work because it was the only person I can fully confine with and it's it's hard because my whole family was back in Europe and um, I had two daughters from my husband's first marriage that were adults but one of them really petite that she couldn't do anything if she wanted to and the other one uh, with two little kids and they were not living with us so that's that's the part that people don't understand yeah and it is it's physically you know my grandmother was small
1: you know she was only four four foot 11, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not big, but my grandma was really tiny. Yeah. And she lost a lot of weight at the end. So she was very
0: petite and it still took two of us to give her a bath. Yeah. Because when she's not able to help that yeah. that body weight is really doubled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah,
1: And it is, it, it's one of those things where, you know, she was my grandma and I think her and I felt comfortable together, but I don't think she would have even felt comfortable with my mother mm-hmm. doing that or yeah. one of her sons, especially, you know, she yeah. wouldn't have wanted them to have to bathe her like that. Right. Because yeah. you're right, you know, some of that is just, this is your your family. But also, you know, we're so far removed from the whole situation that I think that some of it, you know, like, if we grew up watching, like, I'd spoken with somebody, that uh, I think she was from Brazil and she said that she grew up watching her mother take care of her grandmother until Mm -hmm. her grandmother died. And like doing all of it, the bathing her, the feeding her, you know, like, and it was just a normal part of their life. And so to her, it wasn't, you know, there was no like loss of dignity. It wasn't embarrassing. It wasn't Mm -hmm. anything like that. It's just what you do. It's your, it's your family. That's what you do. Where for most of us we don't see it; it's yeah. not our experience. So then that leads to everybody feeling uncomfortable with the situation of like, I don't know, this is weird because like they're naked and I have to bathe them and I have to clean them and yeah, you know, it's it's you're right.
0: You know, this is interesting because you write that there are cultures where uh the multiple generations live together, and you are this is part of you know, your life. And I remember we have grandparents living with us. I remember my grandpa dying at home when I was probably close to your age, five, six, maybe. And you just accept it as a part of life. And then my grandma, when she was dying, I was already out of the house and my mom was taking care of her. But you read there that America is very different culture and hardly ever we live in multi- generational houses people you know the kids move on and they move to other part of the world and and uh, so everybody has their own life kind of even when we love each other deeply it is not so close as if you live together 24 7 and that could be a big part of why people are so lost when something like that happened what do i do? do i drop my career do i drop my job i can do this we have to put them in home and all these questions that are so hard so where do you come in as a doula if somebody are you are you i don't know how to formulate the question is are you coming in when people are making these decisions before it, it even starts the whole process of kind of hospice care. Are you there to prepare them when nothing was happening yet? Or do you really come when people are faced with the reality? This is what we have to do now. And what do we do?
1: Ideally, I would start working with people early on. I would start before any decisions have to get made. And so, you know, there's a couple different ways that I think everybody should work with a death doula at any age, at any stage of life, just talking through what they would want at the end of life. I think it's important that all of us have this documentation, um, have the living wills or advanced healthcare directives, um, because we never know when something might happen and we would need that information. Uh, So... Everybody should talk to a death doula at any stage, but really when it would be the most important, I would say is if somebody that you love, or if you get diagnosed with a terminal illness, even if you're going to go through treatment, even if you're going to try everything that may help, talk to a death doula early. Because, again, we can talk through what you will want at the end of life, we can talk through, you know, what the experience is like for you, if I can support somebody, even if it's once a month, once every six months, you know, whatever it is, if I can have a conversation with somebody as they go through this process, then by the time that we get to, you know, maybe it's time to get hospice involved, I already know the person, I know what they want what is important to them, I know how to advocate for them. And I have found that doctors don't always recommend hospice as early as they should. Now, most people think, oh, well, you call hospice when it's the last couple of weeks or last couple of days. No, hospice can really get involved with a six month, you know, or less time span, right? So if the mm-hmm. doctor says, do you probably only have about six months left? hospice can get involved to help control pain, to help control the symptoms, to keep people more comfortable. And we don't usually get that type of recommendation until the person is really at a point where, you know, it's only a couple of weeks, a couple
0: days yeah. left. And isn't so- it, isn't it when the, the hospice, I'm imagining the hospice decision is made when there is agreement that there is no sense of continuing the treatment and trying to heal it. It is just maintaining the to maintaining them comfortable and and basically give up on treatment because it shows not progress. That's what I imagine. That's when hospice would be offered, right? Yes.
1: No, you definitely when you get on to hospice, um part of it is that you have to not be going forward with any more treatments. But again, in our culture, in the medical system, there tends to be this push to continue treatments, even Mm. when it's shown that they're not really working, they're not healing the person. If anything, they're causing more negative side effects. And so if we could be a little bit more, all of us, right, doctors included, if we could be a little bit more accepting of the fact That there gets to be a point in a human's life where no matter what we do, it's not going to prevent them from dying. It's not even going to necessarily extend their life. What a lot of these treatments are doing is making it so the life they have left is painful and full of treatments and doctor's appointments and all of these things that are stopping people from actually living and enjoying their life. Mm. And it's not to say that, you know, a lot of times when people get on hospice, it doesn't mean like you're necessarily enjoying life, but you can enjoy the time that you have with Uh, your family more if you're able to be comfortable and not again, running back and forth from doctors and getting surgeries and getting chemo and having all the side effects that come with it when it's not saving your life and it's not extending your life. But if we don't know to ask the right questions of doctors, you know, when somebody gets diagnosed with something and the doctors say, Well, I think we should do, you know, surgery and we should do radiation. And then we, you know, we got chemo or whatever it is, right? We have all these things. Okay. Well, is it going to save my life? Is it going to slow down the progression? Like, what are the side effects? And if we were to have these real honest conversations, there would be people that would probably make different decisions in what type of care they get. But we don't know to ask those questions and we don't know to have those conversations. And that's where bringing a death doula in, I will support people no matter what their decision. If somebody came to me and they wanted help and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I really wish they weren't going to go through with these treatments because it doesn't sound like it's going to do anything to help them. But they say, you know what? I I'm going to do the treatment. Yeah, fine. I will support people 100% whether I agree with what they're doing or not. It's not about me, mm-hmm. but I will feel better about them making that decision if they have all of the information. And that's right. where, you know, my mother said to me not that long ago, I feel like We really didn't do what was right for grandma. I feel like we really pushed her into getting treatments that maybe just made her really sick. Mm. And I said, well, we didn't know any better. You know, when the doctors were saying, let's try these things on a 90 year old woman, why would I have questioned the doctors? I thought doctors were there to do what was best for people rather than saying, well, what will happen if we don't treat it? You know what will happen if we only do surgery to remove the tumor but don't do the radiation? The radiation was what caused so many of the problems. Yes. You know, like yes. if I would have had better information, I would have asked different questions, and yes, we probably would have made different decisions. But we didn't know at that time, and so that's why people should get death doula's involved before hospice is even what is going don't on. Say that, but, no. But, no. exactly. No. Mm-hmm. But if somebody does say, you know, like my mom or my grandmother or my spouse, or, you know, even God forbid, my child just got put on hospice. I think I need some help. Definitely, you know, reach out to a death doula, call somebody to help support you through that. But it's just going to be a little bit harder for us because we're not going to have as much information about what the person who's dying wanted and how to best support everybody involved. It's not too late but it is definitely best to talk to a death doula early. I mean, it's it's really similar to a birth doula, right? You're not going to call a birth doula when you're in labor. Yeah. You're going to call a birth doula when you find out that you're pregnant so that you can work together
0: right. through yeah. the
1: entire process. And it is very similar in that way mm-hmm. in that we can help at any point, even after death. I've worked with a lot of people through grief because they made it through the whole process. And then when their person dies, they're just like, They feel like their whole world shattered and they don't know where to go from there. And so I've worked with people through grief. So it's never too late to call a death doula, but really earlier is Mm. always going to be
0: the best option. I just realized when you, when, when you were talking, how fortunate we were to have a really good doctor (laughs) Because I did, I certainly didn't know what questions to ask. We kind of, like you said, we, you know, we, we had a team and they would give us the options and we would have to make decisions based on those options. And in my mind, I didn't for a minute consider that this is the end. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wanted to fight. I wanted to, this is, this is no, this is not how it's going to end. And of course, I was respecting my husband as well, who, who you know, considered, yes, yes, we, we need to. But we both realized how severe the diagnosis were. And funny you talk about cooking because I used to have a business as a personal chef specializing in diets that would help people especially with going through treatments to boost their immune system that is destroyed with chemo, all these things because they cannot eat that, you know, the, the their butt, their taste bud change, all these nuances that to support their system as much, but also something that they would be actually able to swallow because it's really hard to deal with the side effects of the treatments. and. So I knew in my mind, I knew what we have to do right away, like to to support him the best. And we got to a moment when the doctor sat us down and he was honest enough, which I really till this day appreciate. And I actually sent him a letter that he told us he wouldn't continue. And he said, I have done it a few times and always regretted it. Oh wow, so we did get that last few weeks when we knew there is no hope, but at least we had that life to live, like you said. Uh, not spending in a hospital with hooked on a, machines and, and being sick like a dog. And I must say, although it was emotionally super hard, of course, we did take time to do things that we love and. And sometimes you start thinking back, like how many times did you not have time for something and how important it is now. (laughs) And so despite me not knowing the questions, we were lucky that we had a wonderful doctor who was really honest with us and actually helped us to enjoy the the end of it.
1: Wow. You are very lucky because that's one of the few times I've heard that and you know the fact that the doctor even admitted I had done it a few times and I always regretted it that's huge because you know doctors they're still humans right like we're we're not machines any profession that we're in and so you know there's ego that gets in the way there's our own emotions there's our own conditioning there's just so many things so there's definitely no judgment from me when I'm saying these things about the medical community it's just that coming in and that's where like at first when I did this work and or you know when I first started getting into it there was a little part of me that had imposter syndrome like I'm just a cook like what makes me think I can go in and do this work yeah I was watching people that were, you know, hospice chaplains or nurses or, you know, social workers, like people that had already worked in this type of area Mm -hmm. going into becoming death doulas. But I think in some ways me coming in completely from the outside is actually a good thing because I'm able to really view it from a new lens. And there was a lot of things that I was really surprised. I thought that doctors and nurses would really be a lot better with death and dying than they are, because I thought, well, they're doctors and nurses, they deal with it every day, not realizing that they deal with it, but they're not good with it, because they're trained to extend life at all costs, that's what their training tells them. And so I'm glad that you had somebody that was able to look at the situation with a broader lens and to say, what's going to be the best thing for this family, the best thing is not going to be to continue treatment, because I know, it's not going to save him, I want to give them that time. And you brought up a good point where one of the things that I've learned since becoming a death doula, and it's because of talking to people and reading stories and learning how often when we are facing the end of life, whether it's our own or somebody that we love, our priorities really get clear on us. And people will think back to how many times did I not do this thing because I was too busy, because I had to, even when it's things that are quote unquote good. I had to clean the house, you know, I had to, you know, do these things. So instead of going for the walk or playing the cards or, you know, sitting down and actually having a conversation with somebody, I was too busy doing things that really in the end don't matter to me. And unfortunately, it takes so many people getting to that place like you did, where it's like, oh, well, now I'm looking back and thinking, how many times did we not do these things because I'm so busy? And that's a broader thing with our culture, right? We put so much importance over things like productivity and money and the things that money buys us that we get to show off to everybody. And we're not really as focused on the things that make a big difference which is the spending time with our friends and our family that we love
0: Can and also be- the the societal feeling what you're supposed to do what you're supposed to be what you're supposed to be doing at this moment exactly and that's that was my one of my biggest regrets when you're looking back and realize that you can't get any of those moments back mm-hmm.
1: yeah and we can't get that time back yeah. and You know, that's why it's beautiful that you're sharing your story with other people so that people that are facing just right aging, right? As we age, it just, you know, my husband and I now we've been together since I was like 21 and he was 18 and we're now in our mid forties, right? We could be together another 40 years or he could die tomorrow or I could die tomorrow. I don't know. (laughs) And in my head, I always have, well, of course we're going to have another 40 years together, which makes us really take our time together for granted sometimes, especially Mm -hmm. when we have little kids and we're both working and he's on the school board and like I'm involved in stuff. And so there's days when we literally just like run past each other and it's like, hey, how you doing? Okay, I'll see you later tonight. I'll be asleep, but you're getting home. And like, mm-hmm. that's the way that our life can be some days. Yeah. But now whenever he leaves the house or whenever I leave the house, we really try to make the effort to like give each other a hug, give each other a kiss, say, I love you, say, you know, have a safe trip. Because I know how many times people's spouses don't come home it's again it doesn't make me happy to think about it it doesn't make me happy to understand that reality but what it does is it makes me so much more grateful for the time that we do have together
0: you're also not agonizing about it it's it's the way you it makes you appreciate more Yeah. yeah yeah
1: it really does it makes me appreciate it more and it makes little things so like just they're just not important things that used to bother me you know maybe the way like the tone of voice he would use that then would like get me upset and i would be upset all day where now i'm just like he's just human it's just Mm -hmm. it We're none of us are perfect in the long run i will probably miss that one day you know like if he does die before me which we joke even though i'm older than him i'm like ah men still die you know before women do so like that's been the joke for so long (laughs) since we've known each other but yet you know the reality of that is like I don't want to live without him but I also know that I can't control it and that one day I will probably be in your shoes saying you know we had to go through this experience and we had to go through it together and I know that I will Never be the same without him because he is. He's my person. I don't need him. No. You know, that's the thing that I'll sometimes say to people because my husband and I, we are very um different in a lot of ways than a lot of traditional couples, right? And I've had usually men say to me, Oh, I see who wears the pants in your relationship, kind of like that type of thing. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay, first off, we both wear pants. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. And You know, it's like, oh, well, you don't need your husband. No, I don't need him, but I want him.
0: You chose him. Yeah. I
1: chose him to be in my life. And so there's times when, you know, I ask him for advice and I ask him to help me make decisions. It's not because I think I can't make them on my own. I just value his opinion and I value his wisdom and his knowledge. And I could do it without him but I don't want to and the reality is is one day I probably will and I don't know when that's going to be and I also have to be okay with that doesn't mean that I want it but there's a difference in just being okay with the fact that we can't control life we can't control death and when it happens to us The only thing I could try to do is just accept it the best that I can and to live every day that I have as best as I can so that when it does come to that point, I hopefully won't have as many regrets about just life. I mean, again, I'm still human. Like I'm sure there's still going to be things that I regret and there's still going to be the shame and the guilt. But again, a lot of that comes with what society tells us, right? Mm -hmm. Like we... We just get so lost in things that society is telling us is important that it really makes us yeah. lose sight of what is real and
0: important to um, us Correct. yeah correct that's uh i was thinking of question now i forgot oh, this <laughs> okay. yes, is so good to listen to you uh, yeah i do uh, so imagine somebody's in that situation god forbid right now making those decisions What can you tell me or tell the listeners, how does it look like when somebody is considering working with you? What does it involve? How, how do they reach out? What does it mean? How often you work together? How, how does it look like what, what they can expect?
1: Yeah, there's a variety of different ways that I work with people. Um, I have clients that I will talk to, you know, virtually once a week, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody that is dying, they're still going through treatments, but I mean, it's becoming more and more realistic that the treatment is not working. And so I meet with them once a week. We talk through what's going on. We talk through childhood stuff, right? Things that they're processing from their childhood, things that Mm -hmm. they're processing from their entire life while also, you know, talking through the fact that the treatment's not really working. And what does that feel like? And how's that working out? And so we meet once a week, I have clients where I'm supporting them as their loved one dies, we meet every three months, just to check in every three months that as it gets more close to the real like active dying phase, I will meet with them more regularly. Mm -hmm. But I started meeting with them a year and a half ago when their grandfather got diagnosed Mm -hmm. to just kind of, again, let's talk through what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, like how's the family doing? Like, let's just kind of have that baseline so that they're able to process their emotions. And then when it's really time, we're able to really come together as much as they need. And if people are local to me so i'm in south jersey um, pretty close to philadelphia i like to meet with people in person but the reality is is even people that are local to me i still meet with them more on zoom than i do in person because it just works for most people's lives to have calls you know especially again if you're working full-time and you're caring for somebody that is going through different treatments you know, you might have to have a phone call at nine o'clock at night, and that's okay. Like I will meet with people at all kinds of different times to support them in the experience that they're having. Um, and it's really about just being there when people need me the most. Um, so whether it's the caregiver or whether it's the person that's dying, as it gets to the active dying phase you know, that's when I really open myself up to almost like on call, you know, if we come to the agreement that, you know, I will leave my phone on all night long, and maybe it is two o'clock in the morning, and you're up with your loved one, and they're thinking that you're there trying to kill them, and you don't know what to do, then that's when, you know, I have text support. So you can text me and we'll talk through what's going on. And then if we need to get on the phone, like we can get on the phone. So I really just try to be there to support people when they need the support the most. But I have been more and more talking with people about, again, at any stage in life, you know, I have an option where um we could just do paperwork we could just do an advanced you know advanced health plan for you advanced care plan um, I call it an end of life care plan and we can get on a Zoom we can do it in person. I have a document that I email out or I can print out and we just talk through different situations, different options of care, what you would want, what you would not want um, all the way down to you know what, type of music do you like what type of books do you like what type of you know scents do you like or not like anything that will help us if there was a time which again there probably will be unless you die suddenly when the time comes when people need to know the answers to these questions and so let's sit down and let's talk it through and then I can have the conversation with you and your loved one, because that's the thing too. We can't just do the paperwork and then never talk to the people around us because they're going to be the ones that when we cannot speak, they're going to be the ones that need to make the decision. And so we need to do the paperwork, have it in writing, but then also talk to the people around us so that they can advocate for what you want when it comes time. So doing that is really important. And again, it really helps me live my life differently. If I could work with people, cause that's where I sometimes will say I'm an end of life coach, um, because it's more like a life coach in a lot of ways where if we can get clear on your fears and your anxieties and work through unprocessed grief, because a lot of us are holding old grief like I was holding from my grandfather who died when I was four. I had never processed that grief until I was in my 40s. And then I was like, oh, I'm actually still holding a lot of grief in here. So I need to work through this. And so if we can all do that, it will honestly change the way that you live your life. You'll show up differently. Your priorities will change. You'll just really appreciate life so much more. And I had tried all types of things to get here, you know, like I've tried all different religions and spiritual paths and, you know, and the drugs and the sex and the, you know, all the stuff in between. Yeah. And I was never able to really get to this place that I exist in now, which is a space of really being present and really living my life from a place of gratitude and living my life, not the life that I thought I needed to have, because that's it everything
0: around me was telling me. You touched on a good point when uh, there are unfortunate situations when we lose someone suddenly and nobody's prepared. Nobody is prepared for that. Nobody's prepared. Sometimes people that are being left there don't even know what the person wanted as far as arrangements. Are there still is it still worth it for them to work with you? Or would that be easier to reach out to grief counseling? I know that there's plenty of those, but is your work different than what they do?
1: Yeah, my work is definitely different than what a grief counselor does. Some of it is, you know, listening to people like a counselor would. But there's definitely a lot of things that are more, like a life coach would do, which is, you know, not that I want to say give people homework, but like, I will, in some cases, give people tools and techniques, and, you know, different. So, for example, for grief, especially, we don't know when our grief is going to be triggered. And when it's a sudden loss, and we're not prepared for it at all, then we have to go out into the You know, quote unquote, real world and go back to normal. And we don't have the tools to really say, Hey, you know, that song that I just heard in the grocery store, or I smelled somebody's perfume, or something just really triggered my grief. And now I don't know what to do with it because I can't fall apart in the middle of the grocery store, or I can't fall apart while I'm walking down the street. Mm -hmm. And so I will create with people a plan on what to do when your grief gets triggered and it's very individual because not everybody's the same but you know i worked with a young um, person whose mother died while they were home on um, thanksgiving break and it's like you have to go back to college and it was sudden nobody was expecting it and you have to go back to college and have people say how was your thanksgiving and what are you going to say oh well my mom died Yeah.
0: Oh gosh. Yeah. Right.
1: And so you're going to have to have tools for how to work with that. So we came up together with ways that, you know, if the grief gets triggered, maybe in that moment, you just hold it in and you just say Thanksgiving was fine, but then you go to the bathroom, you go somewhere where you could be by yourself you know, take a few deep breaths, open and close your hands, make some fists, right? And open and close and just really like move your body, you know, shake your hands around, maybe shake your arms, like do something. And so it was very individual, like what would help you, you know, maybe it's putting on a little bit of music that you enjoy. And again, just like getting to the place where you can continue your day. But then once you get home, you still have to process that. So Maybe it's journaling for some people, not everybody liked journaling. So maybe it's something else, you know, maybe it's dancing because you just need to move that energy out. Maybe it is just, I'm going to schedule time for every night when I get home to take a bath and to go through this ritual of imagining myself, like washing all of this grief off, washing my day off, you know, like everybody is going to be different. And so that's where I'm a little bit different than a grief counselor, because I will listen, but also I want to give you tools on how to process and move forward in your life because we have to go back to life. You and know? based
0: on the individual characteristic that that person, so based on basically unique needs of each, every person, that's, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, <laughs> I really, I I really, like I said, I can't imagine doing this, but I'm so appreciative that you do. <clears throat> and I know that it's so needed. This is, this is service that every one of us who already dealt with losing loved ones uh, wish they had. And I believe that this will help them to realize that there is help if somebody is going through this and you don't have to leave it till the last minute. You can talk to somebody right now and, and get prepared emotionally, supportively, understanding what you're going through. And most importantly, appreciate that whole process of end of life so much easier and be more grateful for the moments you are allowed to spend with your loved ones, which when you don't know what you are doing, it's really overwhelming and it's really very emotionally draining for sure. I also want to mention that um, you have an end of life caregiver journal on Amazon that I would love to encourage people to reach out to if they are so intrigued. And uh, Jill makes, uh, Jill does uh, end of life coaching for people that are facing the end of life and end of life caregivers. So it's not just for people that care for dying person. It's also for the person itself. And it's, I still have to say it's unimaginable for me, but I, I have much better understanding what it involves and how it looks like. And I just hope that people will be appreciated for this kind of information because it's really there's not so much so many tools we don't teach, we don't learn about it in school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yet it is absolutely natural part of life. We all know that none of us is getting out of this life alive no matter how much we want to push it away. <laughs> and, and I think it is in, in our interest to live our life fully and really appreciate every day. But, but we have to understand these things. We have to accept them as part of life. And somebody like Jill can do a lot for us to help us smoothly cross that bridge when, when the time comes. Is there anything you would like to say to kind of say goodbye with that we didn't say so far? You, you said so many beautiful things. I can't wait to listen back to it and write some quotes down because I didn't want to write it as we spoke. But something that we want to say goodbye with to somebody who may be sitting there considering, should I call? Should I not call? What, what do I do? Who knows? What would you tell them? Don't be
1: afraid to look at mortality in the face. I know it seems scary, but we're going to all have to look at it one day anyway. And it's really something that like a lot of things in life, it seems scarier to think about doing it. And then when we actually do it, it's like, Oh, that wasn't as bad as I was afraid it was going to be. And that's why you know, I can help support people in doing that. So if you are afraid, it's okay. You know, there is support out there to help you in doing it, but you won't regret doing it. So, so just start, just start now. You know, even listening to this podcast episode is a start, right? So you can oh, feel no. proud of yourself for listening to this episode and just keep doing it. Keep touching on it. Keep thinking about it. Keep learning about it. You won't regret doing it when you have to face it one-to-one, face-to-face.
0: Yeah, I, I I truly believe this is absolutely wonderful service you do for people so needed and so so little is out there for those moments when we really need some help and support and even help understanding it's it's really absolutely i'm grateful to have met you this was absolutely mind-opening eye-opening uh podcast for me as well and i so appreciate you made time for us Jill. and i wish you all the best and i hope anybody who may be dealing with these hard times uh would realize that there is help for them and they are not alone and they can reach out and have the support that they may need and it's very personalized support it's not going somewhere and share your stories this is this is very much personalized to your unique situation and needs which i appreciate so much so thank you so much for being on my, on my podcast these are third chances we all have chances to to make in our life and this was very teachable moment for me i so appreciate jill thank you
1: thank you so much for having me on it was a pleasure and um, i appreciate the conversation with you being vulnerable about your story with me as well so thank you thanks